Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and thanks for finding us and taking the time to be a part of our little piece of the baseball world. Let me also start by saying thank you to Keith Abolito, who helps put these things together. And these things are not easily done. I appreciate the work that he does put in, and I hope you do as well. I hope if this is your first time in, you enjoy it enough to drop back in in the future and catch up with the episodes already posted here. If you get an opportunity to spread the word or rate and review, much appreciated. If you are new to hardball, here's what we're trying to do week in and week out and why I hope you believe it matters. These conversations started 20 years ago and for one simple reason. Everyone has a story. And to believe that we know what someone's story is just because we see them play on our TV didn't seem to make sense. So it was time to hear some of them firsthand. And tracking down these men and asking them if they would like to talk about their careers, the people they played with and against, and the plays, games, the wins, and at times the losses was fascinating even before the record button was hit. I've also realized that to document history, you have to keep seeking it out. And in a new round of conversations I started in 2019, this being one of them, today's guest certainly fits the bill. As a history maker and party to some of what many people believe bridged the gap of the game's greatest era. Hall of Famer Joe Morgan watched the game of the 50s and started his career in 1963 and finished up in 1984. Think about that range of memories and experiences. You can make a case that he's one of, if not the greatest second baseman of all time, a back-to-back two-time MVP on one of the greatest teams of all time, and played with and against Ben Schmidt, Seaver, we will talk about all of them and more, and against Aaron, McCovey, Mays, and Stargell. We will talk about them as well. We do start it off, though, by discussing the little man thing and what the mindset of others and how ultimately what he thought about himself would help set his path. Two men in particular he looked up to, and how he developed a relationship with one, and how just one meeting with the other was all he needed. There's a lot here, and let me finish by saying this. When I told a couple of people I wanted to catch up with Joe, I was, quote, warned that not only did he not do much of these types of things, but he might not be overly engaging if he did. Well, let me tell you, couldn't have been further from the truth. Open, funny, a want to tell stories, and an assessment of the game he played versus the one played today. I think like many, he doesn't want to sound like a get-off-my-lawn guy, but the game has changed. The physicality around second base, body armor at the plate, pitching inside, by the way, Bob Gibson will come up, and more. So whether you're listening on a walk or run or in the car or back porch, I hope this episode and the others bring back some memories or perhaps even create visuals that bring you to places you've never actually been to, watching in your mind's eye players you never saw play live. Here he is, Joe Morgan. Batting third. Playing second base, number eight, 
Joe Morgan. Joe may have been the best player I've ever seen ever. He could get a hit, he could take a walk, he could steal a base, he could hit a home run, and he was and he could win the gold glove. Uh oh, that's deep. Way back there. Jackson near the wall. One nothing. Uh-oh. There she goes. Deep to right field. Could be out of here. One nothing. That's his third World Series home run. Joe Morgan. Morgan going and takes it in foul ground. Here comes over. series. Morgan is playing a very valuable role yesterday and today. In the air to right field. Look at that. Dwyer is going all the way back and it's out of here. That man has the upper body strength of a fullback. Look at him. Boy, an honor and a pleasure. Anytime you get a chance to speak to somebody with this career, a Hall of Fame career, Joe Morgan joins us tonight on Hardball. Joe, really appreciate it. How are you doing? I am doing great. Everything's great. Yeah. I, do you ever get used to actually being known as Hall of Famer Joe Morgan, even a, even after all these years? I, I, well, I do now, yes. At first, it was a little strange because, you know, they say Joe Morgan. But I have to tell you a story. When I was, when they call you to tell you whether you got enough votes or not, they asked for me and my wife had answered the phone. So I got to the phone, and they said, uh, you know, from now on, you, you will no longer be called Joe Morgan. From now on, you'll be Joe Morgan Hall of Famer. And I have to tell you, man, I, when you think about goosebumps and stuff going through your body at that time, it was unbelievable. So, yeah, that's how they started off with me. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because was there a moment in your career where you thought it was I – want, I want to talk about literally how it started in a second, but was there ever a moment during your career where you thought that was a possibility? You know, it, it, it's that's another interesting story. I had not thought about it. When I got to the big leagues, my first goal was to stay in the big leagues for a long period of time. My second goal was to be one of the best second basemen, you know, of my generation. That's the way I went about it. I didn't think about the Hall of Fame until I was playing for the Reds. One day, Sparky Anderson uh, called me into his office. Actually, I stopped by his office, and he said, Joe, he said, uh, you know, you're going to be most valuable player in the league. And, and that kind of stunned me a little bit. He said, and you need one of those to get into the Hall of Fame. Mm. And that struck me, you know, right then. I need that to get into the Hall of Fame. So I started thinking about the Hall of Fame probably at that time. That was 1975 when Sparky told me that. And then the next year I won, you know. And so um, I did start thinking about it at that time. What's not really known, I don't think most people know this, you actually played longer in Houston than you did in Cincinnati cumulatively, correct? Correct. People do not know that. Uh, but I never leave the Astros. I always have a feeling for the Astros. I'm pulling for them now, even though I'm a national leaguer. Uh, I'm pulling for them because, you know, that was my first team. They gave me the opportunity to play. You have to remember, I was five foot six or something, 150 pounds. Not a lot of teams were banging on my door, you know. And the Astros gave me an opportunity to play in the big league. So I will never forget that. Everybody has a signing story. I want to ask you about that in a second. But I, I'm going to yeah. say what you just said. So I have a 14-year-old daughter, and she plays soccer. And she went right. through a growth spurt in the last year and a half to get to five foot four. But I'm telling you, she was four eleven playing. Uh, she was four eleven up in age. When she asked me what I was going back to the studio for, I said, "Well, I'm going to be speaking to a gentleman by the name of Joe Morgan." I said, "He's a Hall of Famer," so she understands Hall of Fame. Then she asked right. me, so she knows Jose Altuve, 
And, right. and what's, I swear to you, Joe, this just happened about two hours ago. She looked at me and said, do you think he ever felt dismissed when he was growing up because of his size? And I said, you know what? I, I, I'll ask him because she's gotten patted on the head. People have looked yes. at her. And I'm telling you, she's mean. And she internally has played. Now, she's average size now, but I'm telling you, she played up so she was even smaller. To think that 11 years old, she knew what was being thought of or what was sort of. Yeah. Can, and I'm going to ask you her question. What Was that your case as well? Of course. You know, when I was a little guy, you know, uh, when I was I'm still small, I guess, in overall sense of the word. But, uh, yes, I was small and I was always treated that way. You know, you're the small guy, you know, this and that. In fact, one of the reasons I signed with the Astros, Bill White, W-I-G-H-T, he was a, a pitcher in the big leagues. And everybody else always said to me, the other scouts, that, man, you're a great little player. Bill White never said, you're a great little player. He always told me I was a great player. He never mentioned size. And that always jumped out at me, of course. But, look, over the years I had to deal with it. But I always felt like it was a positive for me because I felt like I had to work harder. And so I was always used to working harder than anybody else. So, in my mind, I think being small helped me in the long run. I, I think she always thought you have no idea what's about to happen to you. I, I, I think yeah. she's sort of thrived on that, even as a young person, that, okay, we'll see. And, and look, at the end of the day, you do have to use what motivates you. You do have to yeah. use what makes you better, not just physically better, but mentally better as well. Well, I think the mental part of it is what made me into the player that I was. You know, uh, physically, I wasn't stronger than the other guys. I was quicker, but I wasn't stronger. But mentally, I was stronger. Mm-hmm. Mentally, I was pretty tough, you know. What, what was I you? never thought of myself as a little guy, to right. be honest with you. By the way, that's the other part of it. She said, you can think it. I'm just ready to yeah. play. So, Thank you. So yeah. what's your signing story? Smart lady. Right. Thank uh-huh. you very much. And, and, and again, it served her well. I, she's, she, yeah. she's played fearless still yeah. to this day. What was your signing story? You mentioned. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting because, you know, Bill White came to my house and he wanted to sign me. And, uh, you know, and, of course, my mom and my dad and I were all sitting in the front room with him. And he wanted me to sign. And my dad and I said, well, where do we sign? You know, my mom said, no. I want my son to finish college. I was going to college. That was my first year in college. She said, I want him to finish college. I, you know, I want him to get an education. This baseball thing, you don't know what's going to happen. That was my mom. And I remember I was smart enough to say to her, I said, Mom, I will get my college degree. Luckily for me, I didn't tell her how long it was going to take, <laughs> but I did get my college degree. I went back in the off season and, and ended up, you know, getting my college degree. And I think she was more proud of that than the fact that I was, I, I graduated from college the week before I went into the hall of fame. Wow. It took me that long, but, um, she was more proud of me getting my degree than my dad and I were more proud of me going to the hall mm-hmm. of fame, of course. Yeah. My mom was more proud of the degree. So that was my signing story. I, I promised her I would get it. And I did do that. And Joe, it, it's really interesting because I just spoke to Carl Erskine, and, and he came up mm-hmm. in the Dodger organization, 26 minor league teams, 26. And you tell a player right. that today, and they can't believe it. They're like, oh, crap, old man just talking nonsense. 26. Yeah. You, you're only literally 20 years, one generation removed when you go. What were your thoughts when you showed up 
at, at camp and you're looking around going, not only are they men, uh, I'm going to try to take one of their jobs. Everybody's on a one-year deal. Yeah. What were you thinking? Well, I, I didn't give that much thought. You know, by the time I got to the big league camp, you know, I was I played in, I was most valuable player in the Texas League the year before I went to my big league camp, mm-hmm. when I went to that camp to make it to the big leagues. And I went there with a sort of a chip on my shoulder, kind of saying, hey, I'm pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I was the most valuable player in the Texas League where they had a lot of great players. So I felt great. And so I just went there with the idea I'm going to work as hard as I can and whatever. And uh, the great story is, you know, I grew up idolizing Nellie Fox and Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, for obvious reasons, he made it possible for me to make it to the big leagues. And Nellie Fox, because he played the game, small guy, the way I wanted to play it. So when I got to camp and Nellie Fox was there, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine that? Here you are on the team with the guy that you've idolized all these years. He and I became best of friends, and he taught me how to be a big leaguer on and off the field. And we were so close. You know, I'm still very close, you know, with his wife and family. I still talk to them. But Nellie Fox, he was he was the guy for me, and here I am in camp with him. And it was just it was amazing for me. It, it, it is interesting because a lot of players that I've spoken to who played years ago – uh, I did a series like this, and guys who played in the, some of them played in the 30s, uh, but the 40s and the mm. 50s, and then the 60s, you you realize that this idea that what baseball player young guys have today, this idea that you just sit over there, uh, you don't get BP today, you don't take ground <laughs> right. balls today. I mean, that was a that was a real thing for a lot of you guys. Well, you had to wait your turn in the batting cage to late finish, and they said, now you can go rookie, <laughs> you know, or something like that. It was a but, but you know what? I think it was a discipline thing. It helped me to understand that I've got to work my way to get into that situation. You don't just walk into it. You got to work your way into those situations. So I think a lot of those things that they did back in the day were good and they were good, you know, teach you, you know, how to work hard, responsibility, all that stuff. Um, You know, I I think the players today are bigger, stronger, faster. We know that. Um, I just think that, you know, sometimes, it, it becomes it gets there too quickly, and they're not sure of how to sustain it, and and sometimes that becomes a problem. Were you able to build a relationship with Jackie at all? No, um, I met Jackie Robinson one time, and even that is still one of the proudest moments of my life because he was working for a Saturday game of the week, and we're at a game of the week. I was with the Astros my first year. And I knew he was going to be there. I went to the ballpark. It was a one o'clock game. I probably went over there about nine o'clock. I did not want to miss the opportunity to say something to him. And I was waiting when he came out the tunnel with he and Pee Reese. And I ran over to him and I said, you know, I introduced myself. And on the way I had, I'd have to tell you, I must have had a million questions I wanted to ask him. And on the way over there, you know, I got there and I looked at him. I introduced myself and shook his hand. And I panicked. I couldn't. I could not remember anything except to say thank you. I looked him in the eye and I said thank you. Mm-hmm. And that was the greatest thing I ever did. Instead of asking questions and doing all the other stuff, I said thank you. He looked at me, smiled, and said, "You're welcome." And since that time, you know, I, I got to know his family. He passed away, and I got to know his wife and whatever. I'm actually on the board of the Jackie Robinson Foundation for the last 25 years or whatever it's been. So. 
um, yeah, I've I've had such a great you know situation with Jackie Robinson, my idol, and, and Nellie Fox, the two people that I idolize the most. I got a chance, you know, to be around him and Jackie only for a moment, but I have been able to kind of help pay him back by being on his board. Which, by the way, is tremendous. And and look, a lot of times, especially in this game, this world, sometimes those people will disappoint you. You know, you maybe the expectation yeah. is too high. The fact that you went two for two with that yeah. is, is pretty incredible. Yeah, Nellie Fox, I mean, to say that, you know, he was more than what I expected – he was 10 times more than what I expected. And Jackie was too, just the look in his eyes. And when I looked at him and, and was holding it, shaking his hand, you know, that told me a lot right there. Joe, how did you end up in Cincinnati? For people who don't realize that, that you know, again, yeah. It's, yeah, I know there's a story behind it. Well, it's a long one, but I'm going to try to tell you the shortest one I can get to. Uh, you know, when I played for the Astros, I started, you know, as a co-45, of course, but then I played for the Astros. And I still, to this day, say if the Astros would have been more patient, we could have won something there and sustained it. Uh, Jimmy Wynn, Rusty Staub, you know, we had all these great players, so Daniel, Bob Watson. I mean, I can go on and on, but I'll tell you a little story. I got traded to Cincinnati because the year I, I my final year in Houston, we played in the big Astrodome, big place. Mm-hmm. And I was tied, I think, for the home run lead or second, first, close. You know, I had 14 home runs, I think. And that was more than anybody but one person. Jimmy Wynn was hurt, I think, that year, so he would have hit more. But in any case, they needed power. And so, uh, you know, Lee May of the Reds, they wanted Tony Perez or Lee May. So they ended up, you know, getting Lee May. They wanted a power hitter to, you know, and Cincinnati needed some more speed. So it was kind of a match made in heaven, so to speak. So they sent Lee May uh, to the Astros, and he didn't hit a lot of home runs there because that place was so big, and the only person that hit home runs there consistently was Jimmy Wynn, the mm-hmm. toy cannon. So that's how I got to Cincinnati. Um, and even then, you know, I wasn't happy to go because I didn't want to get traded from Houston. I knew we had some good players, you know, Larry Durker, Pitchett. We had all these great players, Don Wilson, you know, a lot. We had a lot of great players. If you go over those uh, lineups now, you realize how good those players were. And uh, so I didn't want to go. You know, I was unhappy that I got traded. And I went to my dad's house one day, and we were just talking. And my dad looked at me, and he said, you know what, son? Now you have a chance to play in the World Series. And you know what? A light clicked on. And I said, you're right. You know, and but that's what dads are for, right? Right. <laughs> to guide you in the right, right. direction. You and know, that, one, that one conversation made everything okay. So that when I went to Cincinnati, I was going to play in the World Series. You just needed f- fresh eyes. You just needed a fresh yes, mindset. Yes, I did. Yeah. Correct. When you walk in and you see the talent in Cincinnati, <laughs> what 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 are, you, what are you thinking at that point? Well, you have to remember I played against all those yep. guys, so I knew how good they were. Um, but Pete Rose and I already had a special friendship because he had been a second baseman and I had been one as well. Um, and when I walked into that clubhouse, you know, and the guys were all there and I look around the room and you see all the talent. Again, I was doing the same thing in Houston. I'm looking around. I'm looking at the toy cannon. I'm looking at Cesar Cedeno, two of the greatest players ever. I mean, 
athletic-wise, they could do everything, both of them. They could run, they could hit home runs, they could play outfield, they could do everything, steal bases. So that was okay. But then I realized these were championship players. Right. You know what I mean? There's a difference between having a lot of talent and being good players mm-hmm. and, and a championship player. A championship player carries himself a different way. And every day in that practice, in the locker room, everything, I got the feeling that I was on a championship team. And I had to measure up to those guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, yes, I, it was a big awakening, me walking in that locker room the first time. What about the Cincinnati fan base? Well, they weren't happy. Obviously, they were not happy. You know, because two of their favorite players, Lee May, Tommy Helms, they were their favorite players, mm-hmm. you know. And they were going, and here's coming a guy that they probably didn't even know much about, you know. And uh, I will say this, they gave me a chance. They gave me an opportunity. They didn't immediately, you know, uh, put me under pressure. They, they gave me an opportunity to see what I could do. And I have to tell you, probably about a month into the season, they were everybody was happy. Right. And, and you guys, look, at Big Red Machine, it's one of the great nicknames in all the sports, and boy, did it fit. Top to bottom, I, I've had different guys from both that team who I've spoken to over the years and guys who played against that team. In terms of the, the engine, your name has certainly come up. But there have been other names that people say, and it's really interesting. I had a guy tell me it's this guy or it's that guy, if not for right. that guy. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's putting you on the spot. I'm not trying to make it like, hey, name your favorite kid. But, but did you have a feeling of, of what, who the engine on that team was? Let me tell you something. I've always had the feeling that that team was like a glove. We had five fingers, you know, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez, you know, George Foster, that group of guys, we fit like a glove. And all of us at some point would carry the team at different times. I think I was a little bit more important because I was what they needed, some speed. They didn't have speed on the team when I got there, except for Bobby Tolan. He didn't stay long. But by the same token, remember now, AstroTurf became yeah. the, the, the field. And quickness and speed were more important. You know, I had you had to be quick to, to go corral mm-hmm. a ball on the AstroTurf, you know, and so forth. So all the things that they, they needed something, and I was that guy. You know, I could add, uh, you know, speed on the defense. I could add speed, stealing bases. And, I, you know, I could hit some home runs. I, I could do a lot of different things. So the things that I did fit so well with all the other things that they did. So, you know, I think we all, you know, were that engine at some point or another, okay? Um, I have always, you know, just kind of said that what I did is I, I, I tried to every day I went on the field. I wanted to prove to the people it's back to that little guy thing again, but I wasn't thinking. I Every day I went on the field, I wanted to prove that I was the best player on the field. And you just think about that. I got to go out here and try and prove I'm better than Johnny Bench, B. Rose, Tony Perez, George Fox. Yeah, you're not trying to. That's the attitude. You're trying to be better than guys on your own team. Like, think about that. Thank you. Right. No, I was trying to be the best player on the field every day, whether it was, you know, against the Giants or whatever. But that included my teammates. I didn't want them to not do well. I just wanted to do better, you know, and to play better. I wanted to prove. You know, every day, you know, obviously that wasn't the case. I didn't go out there, and I wasn't the best player on the field every day. But every day I went out there, that was the attitude I took with me. 
I mean, you know, some days, hell, Bench would just take over and we didn't need anybody else. Perez would take over. Some of the other guys would take over and they didn't need anybody else. But for me, every day I just wanted to prove that I was the best player on the field. And I really believe deep down that Pete Rose felt that way, Johnny Bench felt that way, Tony Perez and Foster. I think they all felt the same thing. I want to show that I'm the best player on the field today. And as long as it doesn't become a me, me, me team. Oh, no, no. It yeah, that's an incredible that. That's an incredible thing no, to have that much talent that. in a room and not have it be that. That's why oh, you win. No. Well, that's exactly why we win. I've always told people, look, we had so much talent. We had talent, true. But you know what? It was the smartest group of guys I've ever been around. And just what you're saying there, they didn't have, we didn't have any animosity. Hell, if Pete got five hits, I was as happy for him as I was with my two, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or bench or whatever. And we all were that way about each other. We did not have any animosity. We weren't there saying, well, you know, uh, I want to do this or that. I mean, look, I won two MVPs. Bench won two MVPs. Well, he, he won one while I was there, but he won one in 70 before I got there. Mm -hmm. And Pete won an MVP. Foster won an MVP, right? So we all did what we were supposed to do. The only thing I feel bad for is Tony Perez. And no one ever realized how good Tony Perez was and how important he was to our team. And he never won an MVP. He's the only one of that group that did not win an MVP. And I still feel bad for that because if you were in that locker room, you played with him every day, he was an MVP. Yeah. You, you know what's really interesting? I, what year was your first All-Star game, Joe? Pardon me for not knowing. Um, no, you don't have to know. Hey, man, before I got to Cincinnati, nobody knew. Uh, let's see. My first All-Star game was 70. Is that when Pete ran over Ray Fossey? Fossey? Yeah. So what's... That was my second one. Now, wait a minute. My first All-Star game was 1966, my second year. My second year in the big leagues, I got selected to start in the all-star game by the you know players voted and I was selected to start and I got hurt like a couple of weeks before the thing I got so I didn't play okay so my first actual playing time was in 70 uh, but 66 was my first year selected and then 60, uh, 70 I was I was at home plate trying to tell Pete to get down you know when he ran over Ray Fossey um, so that was my first all-star game that I played in was 1970. I want to ask you, what's it like to walk in that room? You know, you can play, you, you got picked oh, in 66, but that room <laughs> and the idea of what that game meant to the national league in those days. Yeah. Well, you know, I grew up here in the Bay area, so I idolized Willie Mays, you know, McCovey, Cepeda, uh, Marichal, you know, all of them and all of them were on the all-star team. My first year, 66 and somebody, you know, knew I was from the Bay Area. They lockered me next to those guys. Mm. I mean, you have to remember that was 66. I graduated from high school in 61. And I had been over there watching the Giants, watching the Giants. You know, I grew up, you know, just going to the games. And then I got to 65 was my first full year in the big leagues. So four years after I graduated from high school, you know, here I am standing next to the guys that I've been idolizing since they came to San Francisco. And so it was an unbelievable experience for me that day. The only negative, obviously, is I couldn't play because I was supposed to start, you know, in that game. Mm -hmm. um, and I did not get to play. But, you know, I was there to see all the everything that went on and how to carry yourself and so forth. So, um it was it was an unbelievable experience, and you know Willie Mays, McCovey, Cepeda, 
marriage child, all of them became good friends with me before we all retired, before we all made the Hall of Fame. We were all friends because they all lived maize and, and some paid. Everybody lived in the Bay Area except Marichal. So I would do things with him. I'd play golf with Maze. I'd play golf with McCovey. You know, so, and I, I, I had a relationship with these right. guys after that All-Star game that day. So it was fabulous. Were you aware as you became a veteran, not only in the league, but a veteran of the All-Star game, about the young version of you? There's somebody sitting on that side of the locker room who was you 10 years later. Like, you are <laughs> one of those guys. Because, look, the advent of, of TV baseball yeah. and the game of the week, and we're going to talk about the 75 World Series in a second, but these guys actually had a chance to see you. So there's some 23-year-old who's in a room with yeah. you guys at that point. Were you aware of that? Well, they made me aware of it. You know, some of the young guys would come over and say, man, you know, I've always admired the way you play. Or, you know, they'd say something, mm -hmm. they'd give a compliment. And so, yes, I was aware. I don't think there were as many young players, though. You have to remember, back in those days, the All-Star game was the All-Star game. I mean, the American, the National League wanted to prove they were better right. than the American League. And it was always that, that was the way it was played. It wasn't played the other way. Mays and those guys would play until the game was decided. It wasn't like they played three innings and leave, et cetera. And I remember the first All-Star game, Bill Giles, Warren Giles was the president, and he came in. And he says, guys, you're not here to have fun. You're not here to do anything except beat the American League. You are the National League, and we are here to prove that we are better. And every year I heard that speech. Every year I made the all-star team. Mays would give that speech sometimes. Somebody mm -hmm. would give that speech after Giles was gone. Somebody would give that speech. Guys, we are the National League. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just to say it in that direction was always important. And we kind of played the game to win every year. And I think it took the American League a long time before they really started playing it to win. You know, it's really interesting because you work in the media as a broadcaster for so long. I want to ask you about 75 because night right. World Series games really were only four or five years old at that point. So the idea that it's not day baseball, we think we have something, let's put it on in prime time. But the Fisk game, that series, but certainly the Fisk game, I don't know if there was a bigger TV game for baseball because it had to be the next day, the water cooler talk. And all of a sudden, I think, I mean, you tell me you lived it in every way, shape, and form. I think baseball needed that primetime moment to actually become, oh, yeah, by the way, we are a primetime game. This is what is supposed to be happening. I am so proud of the fact that I was on the team when they first started playing night games in the World Series. Mm -hmm. I always, I grew up idolizing the, the day game World Series, you know what I mean? And I wanted to play. But by moving it to the night games, it allowed more people, obviously, to see it. Um, the 75, you know, World Series, you know, we can argue one way or the other, the greatest series ever or not. You know, there's a lot of great series. Uh, but in 75, it was a lot of things going on because the Reds had been dubbed the Big Red Machine and we hadn't won anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. We were just a lot of good players hadn't won anything. So that 75 series was very, very, very important, you know, to us and our legacy and the legacy of, of the Reds. So 75 and the have to sit for a couple of rainouts and all that yeah. stuff. We hated that, but it gave time for the drama to build, I right. think. Everything was building and building. 
And when we took the field in game six, you know, after all the rainouts, except whatever, because uh, we kept waiting because we just needed one more victory. So, you know, when we took the game, field in game six, man, it was, I don't know, you know, you tingle. You know, I was listening to, I was watching the game yesterday, and people are talking about, well, how can a 20-year-old do this under this pressure or whatever? To me, the first game of the World Series, there is no pressure. I mean, you have worked all season to get to the World Series. This is your relaxing moment. Enjoy it, you know, just and take it all in and enjoy it. And once the game starts, obviously, you're going to play it like you always play, under pressure, trying to win. But I did not accept that. And I'm saying, well, how are you supposed to play? I mean, you're supposed to just go play. That's mm-hmm. what you're doing. And, you know, I heard him asking, well, what do you think about facing uh, – uh, Cole, you know, and I'm saying to myself, no pitcher is invincible unless his name is Koufax and Gibson in the World Series. <laughs> yeah. Those are the only invincible <laughs> names I know in the World Series. Do you remember? And, do you remember though, it, lining up uh, on the, on the first or the third baseline, tipping the cap, the bunting? You, you're trying to create normalcy. It's very interesting that you put it right. that way. But you are trying to create normalcy in an abnormal situation. Well, that's true to a certain extent. You know, I, I guess I was – because I was trying to put myself in the, these guys' shoes when they were saying that yesterday. Um, the only time I can officially say in my mind that there was some – I don't want to say – hell, I was always nervous before I played every game. Mm-hmm. But the seventh game of that World Series in 75 – uh, Johnny Bench gave me a photo of all of us standing on the line. You know how they introduce mm-hmm. everybody. Sure. He gave me a photo. And I have to tell you, I, when you look at that photo, and one of these days go back and look at it, if you look at that photo, every guy on that team, we're not talking to each other. We're not doing whatever. We're getting mm-hmm. our minds and ourselves ready. And each one of us was doing it a different way. You know what I mean? Yep. I thought it's the greatest picture I have, and it's on, big on my wall here. And I look at it periodically and I see it, you know, I end up signing a lot of those photos too. So, but I look at it and that is an unbelievable photo because it tells where everybody's mind was on the reds and nobody's talking to each other. We're getting ready to do battle because this was it. I mean, it's game seven. See, to me, game seven is different, you know, than, than game one. Hell, yesterday would have been fun for me, you know. <laughs> but game seven is a little different. You, you have to you have to stay in the moment for two and a half, three. Well, three was two and a half hours back in those days. You got to stay in the moment for like four hours now. Were you a so guy? It but, is different. Yeah. Were you a guy who appreciated? And I mean, you got to get ready for game seven. But was was there enough of a fan in you, or the idea of what was going on in Fenway when Fisk goes deep and you're walking off the field and you go? damn, this is pretty amazing. I mean, can you even get yourself to that place where you're almost out of it for a second and you're, you know, out of that moment of being Joe Morgan, the guy who's playing second base for the Reds, to go, uh, th- this whole thing is pretty amazing. That's, that's, that is a great question because I have to tell you, I can't remember getting out of the moment. I did not. All, you know what I did do? And people laughed at me. I stayed on the field until he touched all the bases. Mm-hmm. No one else did. The Reds and the other guys went in, and I stayed there to make sure he touched all the bases. I don't. I ain't no way they would have called it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I stood there and watched him touch every base. Okay, so we go in the locker room, and my lockers was always next to Pete. And I walked in, and Pete was talking to the reporters already. 
And he was laughing and joking. He says, wasn't that a great game? He said, I was just happy to be a part of it. And and for a moment there, I said, is he crazy? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, we lost. Yeah. I, I, but, but it did hit me what he was saying because it was a great game for the fans and yep. for baseball. But I guess I had this thing in my mind that we could not lose another World Series. We had to win this one. And I just never got out of the – mode of winning okay we they were asking me the same question what about this game i said what do you mean what about it i said yeah it was a great game but we lost so you know pete was saying he was proud to play in such a great game i could not say the thing i said we lost i mean that's just my personality is a little different and like i said i have to stay where i have to stay to be able to do the things that i had to do um so I mean, I, w- I don't think I was very good company after the game. We went back, and our family, my wife was there. Our wives were there. I just was I'm, – I'm sitting there, can't wait till the next day. Right. And I don't know how much sleep I got that night. I don't think I got a lot of sleep, okay, because I was playing the next day's game in my mind again and what I needed to do and so forth. So, um, no, I could not – enjoy the moment so to speak i did later but i could not at that time so where do you end up when you win that world series that night what's the party what's what happens when you guys win game seven and that's very interesting too because you know when i i was on deck circle the winning run was at third base i think and game in in the ninth inning pete was the hitter and I think it was Johnson came out to the mound, and I was hoping that he would walk Pete. There was a left-handed pitcher on the mound, so I was hoping he'd walk Pete, you know, to get to me. But I had proven to them and showed them because I, I drove in the winning run in game four or mm-hmm. three or somewhere in there too. So they weren't in a hurry to see me up there either, okay? So they pitched to Pete, and he ended up walking on a close well, on a 3-2 pitch, whatever. And I was so happy. I mean, I know this sounds a little selfish, so to speak, but I was so happy that I was going to get the opportunity to drive in the winning run. Look, when I was a kid, I played in my backyard. I'd throw up rocks. This is the seventh game of the World Series, two outs, runner on third. You know what I mean? Or something. Yeah. And I'd hit those rocks over the fence and so forth. So, and you know what? I always got a hit. And I have to tell people, not to, people, you know, I was walking to the plate. And not one time on my way to the plate did I think I was did not did not think I was going to get a hit. I thought I was going to get a base hit on every stride I took to the home plate. And when I got the hit, obviously I was very happy. Yeah. Now, once we got in the locker room and we were celebrating, and I was sitting there by myself, and I said to myself, "What if I wouldn't have gotten a hit?" That was the first time mm. any negative thought came to my mind. And so, you know, that's that's kind of who I am. I have to do things. I had to do things in those days a little different than maybe someone else, you know. And that's the way I, I got myself ready for everything. You know, it was I was very positive because I had a lot of confidence in my ability to handle any moment, any situation. And I was and I was lucky. Look, let's face it. I could have hit a line drive at somebody. They could have caught it. Right. You know, yep. I mean. You, you, you know, I was blessed to be able to get the hit and to help, you know, 
break a string of 40-something years without a world championship in Cincinnati and to put the big red machine on the map. Yeah, it doesn't because matter. Up it, until then, we're it, just some other good team. Yeah, it doesn't matter who you are. Three out of ten. That's the reality of this game. When you're really good, three out of yeah. ten is the reality. Yeah, thank you. So, so what do you do that yeah. night when you guys are celebrating? I, I'll ask you about the parade in a second, but what what's that night like for you guys as a group? Well, as a group, you know, and, and both of the championships I won were on the road. 76, the next year would beat the mm-hmm. Yankees in, in New York. So we had to celebrate, you know, and the, whole, and the uh, team would rent a ballroom or something at the hotel, and we'd go in there. But that wasn't the same. You know, if we'd have been at home, right. it would have been a fabulous celebration. Well, you take it to the streets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we celebrated together. You know, we all, you know, well, we spent a lot of time in the locker room before we left, too. And all of us spent each time probably talking to each one, each other individually, you know, and telling each other how proud we were of each other to get us to that point and to do something. Because we were truly a team, you know, we can say whatever we want, but we were truly a team of guys that knew how to play, knew what their jobs were, and knew what they were supposed to do to help the team win. So it was a great, great group of guys. And like I said, still the smartest group of players I've ever seen, you know, together. So, uh, but we just celebrated in the in the ballroom and whatever. Because I'm not sure. I think we flew out that night. Oh, flew gosh. Back to Cincinnati. Okay. I know. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I think it, was, it wasn't it was that kind of a celebration. Okay. So, and then the next day we had the parade right. in Cincinnati. Which I'm, I'm sure had to be a blast. It was unbelievable. The fans of Cincinnati, I don't think you're going to find better fans, baseball fans, and better Reds fans than you, than you find in Cincinnati. And it was just a fabulous thing, you know, riding down the street, waving and all that stuff, and just to be the smiles on the people's faces, and people were crying, and it was a really, 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 really good deal, you know. So, you know, and I'm sure all the parades are like that, you know, for the championship teams. I've never been to any other one, but, you know, it's 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 a feeling of accomplishment. You know, you went to spring training to accomplish this, and now you've done it, and here we are. So, and it's a, and it's a thank you that yeah. kind of goes both ways. If done right, if the city has an affinity affinity for the team, and it's a forty year drought, and the team has an affinity for the fans, it really is oh, sort yeah. of a thank you that goes two ways. Oh, well, there's no doubt that we thank them; they thanked us. It was it was a fabulous. Like I said, I don't know. It's a, I don't know. It can't get any better than it was. You know what's crazy about – think about the two titles you win. Now, because it's before interleague play, I don't know if you had been in Fenway Park before that series. I don't know if you had no. been in Yankee Stadium. You win in Fenway Park and Yankee Stadium to close out World Series in back-to-back years. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but the two greatest iconic ballparks at that time, you're right. Um, I guess it, it is interesting. I mean, it's unbelievable because – you know, Fenway Park, you know, I'd never seen any. And, and remember, the National League at that time, we mainly had all symmetric ballparks. Most yes. of the cities played with those, you know, like uh, oval-shaped. Cookie cutter, football play football, there, so. right. Yeah. Yeah. So this was, uh, both of those were unique and completely different. You're right. But again, you know, when I first walked into Fenway Park, I was in awe of the left field wall, of course, you know. Because the the monster is the first thing that jumps at you, and uh, so yes, it was it was a very unusual. I'm looking at the ballpark, this, that, and the other. Um, you know, 
it, it, it was a fabulous looking place. And, and, you know, with all the things I've seen over the years, you know, on television, uh, it jumped out at you. And the Yankee stadium was even more of a iconic place, you, you know, you know, what's really interesting and your free agency had just started. So you guys had built a team pretty much in Cincinnati draft or sign right. you're traded, but you're there before the run really starts. And you look at the Yankees and Steinbrenner really was a guy who took advantage of a free agency like that was a really dynamic team in the, in a different way well i remember bob Housen was the guy to put that team together and when we were celebrating that night going back to the 75 you know after we won the championship we we're all in that hotel together and we looked at each other and he said to me you know congratulations blah 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 and then he said to me he said joe this is the last team that will ever be built this way and I'm I'm not going to joke with you. I didn't even it didn't it didn't phase me a lick. I was what's he talking about? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm here to celebrate. You know, <laughs> but his point was, you know, there wouldn't be any more teams built like right. that where you trade and you you know you're homegrown and you trade t- for people. And then at the end of the, that year, you know, probably December or sometime, he sent me a letter, and he basically said the same thing. You know, uh, unfortunately, you know this is the last team that will be built like that and you were a part of it or something like that. I can't remember the personal letter. It wasn't just the, you know, it was personal to me about some other things too. And I did not comprehend even then, you know, and then the next thing I know, they traded Tony Perez Right. the next year, you know, after the next year, Tony was gone. So it wasn't going to be built. There wasn't any more teams going to be built that way. And like you said, after that, it became more free agency and everything else. And and you participated. Look, you, you didn't end your career in Cincinnati. I'm sure a lot of people know that. I don't know how much you enjoyed a, a, those other stuff. Not, not really by choice. Okay. Um, you know, what happened was, you know, Pete left first, and then Tony got traded. Sparky got fired. It wasn't the same team. And to be honest with you, I didn't want to stay there anymore after that. Um I ended up going back to Houston because I'd always wanted, I said when I left Houston, I hope to someday come Mm -hmm. back here and help win a championship. So that became available, and that's why I went back to Houston. Yeah. You you also, uh, Seaver comes over. Uh, Let me just ask you about a couple of guys real quick, and if you don't mind, give me the first thing Mm -hmm. that pops into your mind. Tom Seaver, what what do you think of? New Yorker, (laughs) Hmm. but became a great friend. You know, when you play against a guy and you compete against a guy, I didn't like him, and I'm sure he didn't like me. You know what I mean? We're competing. Mm-hmm. And then he comes over, and all of a sudden you say, well, damn, this guy's a great teammate. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And we became friends, and we're friends up to this day. I, I You know, I, I'm feeling bad because, you know, he's not yes. doing well health-wise. And mm-hmm. I went up to his uh, uh, vineyards and walked the vineyards with him, you know, when he was healthy and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So, But he was a he was a he was a fabulous person too. He fit very well with the big red machine. Yeah, you know what's crazy? Very smart and whatever. Right. I, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. My dad was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. Couldn't root for the Yankees, so we waited for the Mets. We became a huge Met house. So I'm uh, turning 14 when the reality of oh my God, if they can get rid of Tom Seaver, the world is now officially flipped upside down. Like as a 14 year old, you go, this is insane. That's Tom Seaver. <laughs> As a 30-year-old or whatever I was at the time, it was the same with me. They treated Tom Seaver to us. 
You know what I mean? Right. Which will tell yeah. you anybody can be traded at that. Like that's what I thought. Oh well, my God! If you, could tra- yeah, it, there's the reality of the business of the business. Yes. Yeah. You, you play with Nolan? Yes, I played with Nolan in Houston mm-hmm. uh, in 1980. When I left the Reds to go back to Houston, Nolan was there. He and J.R. Richards, unbelievable. You know, they talk about you know uh, Garrett Cole and. Justin Verlander. Mm-hmm. I tell you what, J.R. Richards and Nolan Ryan weren't any better than those two. There's not any better. And, and finally, you don't have to face them. That's the beauty of joining a team like that is you don't have to face them. For you know what? Time. I have to tell you the truth. I didn't mind facing them. And I didn't mind it because, you know, I guess I've always played this game to compete. Mm-hmm. And if I'm in the batter's box against Nolan Ryan, I know I better be on my P's and Q's. I better have my game up to speed. If I'm facing J.R. Richards, you better be ready because they'll embarrass you, you know. Yeah. So it was uh, – I, I I never thought of it that way, plus they were right-handed. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, and I was so you – know. And you get a chance to play with Schmidt. I played with Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt had more ability probably – I mean, he was just unbelievable. He had just so much ability, you know, run, throw, field, hit, hit for power. He could do everything. I just always felt that Mike didn't have the uh, what is it the, the confidence or the uh, swagger mm-hmm. that you know the other guys that I knew Pete Johnny Tony all the great players that I knew he he didn't have that swagger he just was a player you know what I mean yeah and he was unbelievable though well arguably when when you're arguably the greatest to ever play your position and when you make the all century team yeah. like you then then you really so I want to ask you about the turf real quick as a as a second baseman give me the couple of guys left-handed bats that the turf gate look if you can back up a little bit and you could but were there a couple of guys in the course of your career lefties I'm I'm assuming in particular although some righties could probably shoot it that way that you said there's a really good chance I, I could catch one right in the chest because they just Big. Well, probably Willie McCovey comes to mind first. Willie Stargell comes to mind, you know, second. Those two big guys, man, and they put when they hit it, it was hit. And then Dave Parker. So all three left-handers, you know, and um, you know we played on that acid turf, and sometimes that turf oh, would yeah. be wet. And when that ball hit, they'd hit a ball and it hit and skid, and. I really, I'm I'm really blessed because one day, Sparky had us playing in, and Dave Parker was hitting, and he hit a ball. He hit that wet turf, and I was actually trying to get out of the way, you know, and it hit my glove. And I told Sparky I would never, ever play in on those guys again, you know, wet turf. Sure. I mean, I, and I I meant it. It wasn't a joke. Because I, it scared the heck out of me. I'm not kidding. You. Yeah. Could you? And what you're saying is, was those guys get the ball so hard with top spin. Right. It's a like they have a weapon in their hand, and the baseball then becomes a second yeah. weapon. And did, yeah. Can Definitely. you really hear? Can you really hear a baseball if it's hit hard enough go by your ear? Like, can you hear a sound? Is there? A well, sound? I don't really know. I don't think so. I don't think I did. Uh, I've heard pitches. You know, but I don't think I ever heard, you know, I probably did, but, you know, I just said, man, yeah, I'm sure I did. Yeah. Cause I can, I know I heard pitches. Could you hear, is it, is it different when certain guys ball off bat? Like some guys, it's, oh, a, yeah. it's a kaboom. Yeah. There's a big difference in the, the, the way a ball comes off a guy's bat and the sound, 
Well, it used to be. I don't know how much difference there is right. now because the bats are different. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, they were all used white ash, so they were all using the same bat. I see so many bats on TV now. I don't know <laughs> what you know what's what. You know what kind of you know material they're made out of. They don't use white ash, you know the ash bats anymore. So I don't I don't know exactly what they're using. And I know if you go into a lot, let me. How, how long could a glove last you? Well, mine lasts a couple of years at least. Yeah, I use a couple of years because once I got one like I liked it, right. I, I, I don't know. So, I, I mean, the last one I had, I probably used it for the last four years or five years. All I would do is change the web, mm-hmm. you know, and put some uh, new rawhide through the fingers. Uh, once I got it, I had, you know, my last glove to me was perf- was just perfect, you know, for me and what I wanted it, how I wanted to use it. So I use that, like I say, probably I use that probably four years or so, maybe, you know, the last four years or something. I'm very respectful. Uh, you don't touch a guy's glove unless he hands it to you. You don't touch right. his bat unless he says, here, pick it up. I mean, I, I yeah. it really is an interesting thing. And for the right reasons, the affinity or the comfort you can create with the equipment. No doubt. I mean, mine was more with the glove than it was the bat. Because, you know, you're going to break a bat mm-hmm. eventually, and you try to find, you know, when I get a, a shipment of bats, I'd go through them and try to find the, the ones I thought and number them like one, two, three, which I thought the best, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, use them in batting practice until I found the right one that I, you know, I thought it was the right one. Um, so it was more with the glove because that was just, man, that was just a feel. Yeah. The bat was more of a, I don't know, it, it it was it was a utensil. <laughs> it was it was replaceable. Yeah, it was replaceable. The glove, you know, I I would have man if I had changed gloves in the middle of the season or something like that happened, that would have been different. What do you yeah. think of the rules now around second base? Because uh, you know everybody knows the Pete Rose, Buddy Harrelson, and I've seen guys literally knocked into the outfield. Um, well, I've got a zipper on my knee for that, you know, because of it, because mm-hmm. I got my knee torn up. Uh, look. It, it would be easy for me to say, first of all, I don't like the rule where you can't break up a double play. You know, right now you got to slide right in. I like the rule if they say you have to stay on the ground. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That would have been okay. Right. But having to slide straight into the bag and can't go across the bag, no, I don't like that. I was very proud of being a second baseman because it takes a special person to be able to stand there and let guys come in, you know they're coming to break you in half, and you have to make the double play first and then worry about your body. Right. I was very proud of that. You know, I tell people now, because I work for the Reds, and they say, well, we might want to move this guy. I said, anybody can play second base now because they can't hit you. So you just go stand on the bag, Mm -hmm. catch the ball, throw the first base on the double play. And I don't like the rule at home plate either. All right? I think... The, the catcher has shin guards on and all that stuff. So when you slide to a certain place, all he's got to do is drop down and you're finished. You know, so I don't like those rules. I, I understand them. I don't necessarily like them, but I understand that they're trying to, you know, be have the player's safety in mind. So I, I do understand that. Um, I just, I don't know. I just like the game to be played. And, I mean, I just don't believe that, you know, a guy should be able to stand on the bag and throw the first base for a double play, and the guy can't hit him. Right. I mean, the, the game is the wasn't meant to be played that way. I think too, and tell me if I'm right about this. Whether it's 
armor that guys wear when they come up. You don't really get pitched yeah. inside because there's warnings. Yeah. And I'm not telling you I don't understand the safety part of it, but I still and and I'm not a I'm I'm not a get off my lawn guy. I've sort of changed my tune as I've hit my 50s plus. I understand the game still has to be a game. It has to be fun, but I do I do think there was a legitimate measuring stick for guys who played in your era, the era before, maybe the era right after, for a few years right after you were done. That guys measured each other based about how hard they played. Did that guy? Did that guy work yep. his job? Was he a player? And that's a real big thing to guys. Was he a player? Yeah. I, I look. I do not like guys going to plate with armor on. Okay, and it's a safety issue. I guess they're saying. Look, you can't pitch inside, so the hitters are able to go out over the plate all the time, and so the. You know, there's not a lot of room margin for error for pitchers. Mm -hmm. You should be able to come off the plate inside, but I've seen guys come off the plate inside and they get kicked out of the game. Right. You know, and so it's, I won't say it's it's never easy to hit a baseball, but it's easier when there's no fear involved. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, let's face it. I mean, if you face Bob Gibson and you leaned out over the plate, he he wasn't going to hit you, but he's going to get you off the plate. Right. And now they don't do that anymore, and that's not the way the game is played. They don't pitch inside. I watched the whole game yesterday, and I don't remember one guy, as we used to say, getting dust on their heels from leaning back from a pitch. Right. The whole game yesterday, I didn't see that. And so, you know, part of that, and and I don't know, I guess maybe it's like you said, I like to measure a guy's heart and his toughness as well as his skills. And, uh, you know, and that's not to say that these guys don't have the toughness or skills. We don't know because they don't play the game that way anymore. Um, so, I mean, every every slide in the second base is a dive. Every, you know, for stealing the base or something like that. So, I don't know. It's, it's The game is different. I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm not going to get caught up in saying it was better when I played, you know, that old right. thing. But, but here's, I'm not going to get caught up in that. But, but here's the other I, thing, I, Joe. Different. Yeah, here's the it other thing different. about that. So, I, look, I, I also believe that there is information that's really good information, whether you call it analytics, yeah. whether you, it, they have a number for everything, and guys are trying to invent new ones as we speak. Right now there's somebody trying to invent a new number for baseball to tell you, yeah. Eureka, I figured it out. But, but I'm going to go back to what you said in the 75 World Series with that last at-bat in Game 7. I've asked for years now, and I've asked general managers, and I've asked people around the game, until you can tell me you measure the guy's heart rate or his pulse rate right. at moments like that, you don't have a complete anything on a guy. And if no. that's not important, then i got to tell you something. I think we're missing on something. Well, look, the, the, the numbers are for guys really that don't know the game and they're trying to tell you that they do. And like you say, they're trying to invent new ways of doing things. And some of the things work, and some of the things are good. I think there is such a thing as too much information, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to figure. I was watching last night, and somebody was coming in from the bullpen, and they immediately got an iPad and wanted to show this guy pitching. Right. Okay? Now, all of that's great. But I can tell you what he throws before he, you know you look at that iPad, right? And does he want to be in the moment? Does he, you you got you, you got to be able to measure somehow, that's, and that's still eyeballs. You. Yeah, you got to know. Yeah, and when you walk to that plate, how do you know that you're going to see the same pitch that you saw on that iPad? Right. How do you know that he's going to pitch you the same way, or how do you know that he's going to have the same stuff that day 
that he had on the iPad. Right. And therein lies the real problems they're running into with these bullpen games and all this kind of stuff. All the bullpens are great. If you bring a pitcher in every inning and guys don't get a chance to see him twice, all that's great. But if one guy comes in there and he messes up the rotation, now what? Yeah, game plan. Listen, if one guy doesn't have right. what he had the time before. Yeah, there's an expression in boxing. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Exactly. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. So, look, baseball is a, is a great, great game, and nobody's going to be able to destroy it destroy it whether it's the numbers guys or the anybody else we old school guys it's not going to change everybody thinks because i'm old school that i don't like the numbers thing see that's not true i'm not against analytics and stuff i think some of the things are important but i think others aren't you know when somebody tells me that an rbi is not as important as it was before I try to figure out, well, how are you going to score runs? (laughs) Everyone wants to say, well, walks are great, and walks are great. But how are you – somebody's got to drive a run in. He's not going to walk from home to, to, you know, all the way around. So Can I give you the one that drives me crazy? The one that drives me crazy is when people tell me a strikeout's just like every other out. I know. You know I hear that all the time. It's insane. I go through that all the time. It is insane. How can you be – call yourself an astute – analytics guy or any kind of way and you say that a strikeout the same as a ground out or a fly ball i mean i don't understand how you can say that yeah no one can make a mistake on a strikeout but exactly. they can make mistakes on ground balls we've seen them on tv or a fly ball you can score from third on the fly ball i'll give you another you one can't score a guy know? hits a screaming line drive the next time up that pitcher knows that don't tell me the strikeout is the same i know who has more confidence at that moment after the strikeout it's the guy in the mound Thank you. It's not the same. I, hey, I don't know, but they, but you, no one's going to convince them that it's not. Uh, they say an out is an out. I've never, I, I just don't grasp that. But so, hey, you know. Let's let's finish with this. That night at the Hall of Fame, when it's just the Hall of Famers, and I've been fortunate mm-hmm. enough. I've been up there a couple of times when Chipper got in, when when uh, Glavin and Bobby Cox and. Uh, and then when John Smoltz got, so I've made the trip recently, and I know those guys personally. I've been around them. Literally, I've watched Chipper's entire career, and Tommy and, and John and those guys. I'm, I'm very careful of asking about that night in that room because I know what it is and what it's supposed to be. But I will tell you just the other day, uh, gosh, who was I speaking to? Oh, Jim Rice. Jim Rice said, I'll tell you, the hitters talk about golf. <laughs> so he was, he was sort of letting me in on it a little bit as to what that night is. But that's got to be as great as the All-Star game. Hey, look at me. I'm in this clubhouse, and it's the middle of a season. When you go back to the Hall of Fame or when, you, when you're in that room for the first time, when you're invited to that dinner, it's literally the velvet rope of all-time velvet ropes. What, what is that experience like for a guy? Well, you know, for me, you have to remember when I got elected, you know, Ted Williams was still alive, yep. Willie Stargell. People that I just, you know, Stan had Musial. so much respect for. Stan Musial, yeah. All those guys were still alive. Okay, Frank Robinson, whatever. All of them were still alive. It was kind of like what you're saying when I first, you know, walked into the All-Star game. Yeah. You know, here are the greatest players that's ever played the game. It goes one step further. You know, when you the All-Star game, these are the greatest players playing today. When you go into the, the private, you know, room, you're with the greatest players who ever lived. So that's a step forward, see. So, you know, it was different then. You know, a lot of those guys are gone now. 
So there still has to be an unbelievable feeling the first time you walk in there. Right. Look, I get goosebumps every time I walk in, yeah. okay? And that's just the way it is. Because I think, you know, I'm here I'm walking into a room, like I say, with the greatest players who ever lived. And, you know, when people don't think of it that way, are you, I mean, when, whenever you say something, the greatest players that ever lived, that are great, I mean, that's, <laughs> to me, that that says it all right there. Well, think about how many kids, think about this, how many kids were picking up rocks and hitting them with sticks or bats in their backyard. <laughs> yeah. So then you become the 1% of the 1% of the 1% just to actually sniff it. Somebody pays you $8 to go play professional baseball. I don't care what level. <laughs> right. then, then you're the next 1% of the 1% on top of that when you talk about that collection of people. Yes. It's Look, a- it's, uh, I mean, it, it's unfortunate for me that I've been part of the Hall of Fame since 1990. I've been a member. I've been a, on the board for, hell, 20 years, I guess. I've been uh, vice chairman of the board for 16 or 17 years. So I've got a very, i got a lot of stake up there, as they say. Yeah. And I think of things, you know, that I've seen up there and the things, the things that I've been a part of, you know, to be able to go up there back in the day and sit and talk to Ted Williams for an hour or something about getting, you know, to be able to talk to guys, you know, it's, uh, it just doesn't get any better than that. So, uh, you know, it goes back to what I said. I, I, I was blessed and I'll say this, I was blessed to play in the era that I played in. And I still think, cause I guess, you know, the era that I played in have the most hall of famers yep. of any, you know, any era. Yep. So I got a chance to play against those guys. I got a chance to see Willie Mays in his prime. I got a chance to see Hank Aaron in his prime. I only saw Stan Musial a little bit, not in his prime. So I, I didn't get a chance to do that, but all of that, I got to see them. And I guess the thing that kind of bothers me a little bit now, and I have nothing against anybody, because they'll say, well, this guy's the best ever. And I'm like, what do you mean? You didn't see Willie Mays play? (laughs) You didn't see, you know, these guys play. And they didn't. And the truth is they didn't see them play. So they're gauging it by what they see today. And so I guess in their mind that makes them the best ever, but but they're not. Yeah. But yeah, you have to pay respect and know the history. And by the way, I, I'm very cautious of that as well. I will defer to people who tell me uh, that guy's good, but you have no idea how good that guy was. Last thing for you, Joe, uh, have you ever, and I've, I've asked this for 18 years. I think the first guy I ever asked was Phil Rizzuto. Do you ever go to bed at night? Do you ever dream about being a young player? Or have you ever had that dream where you're playing again and you're young and it's, it's sort of that? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, I mean, I dreamed that I'm playing, you know, said I was a young player. Actually, I don't remember how young I was. I always, when I do have these dreams, it's about the big red machine. Mm-hmm. So I can't say, you know, when I'm, you know, how old I was at the time I'm having these dreams. Um, but I don't, it, it, you know, when I first retired, I had a lot of those. You know, when I didn't go to spring training for the first time. Right. I had a lot of those. Um, but no, I, I, now that you mentioned, it, I can't even remember when the last time I had that dream, but I, I have had those. Yeah. It, it's a fascinating life. Uh, the life of a major league baseball player and then to experience championship. It, it really, look, I've asked a lot of people over the years to describe it, knowing that it's, it's probably a terrible question because it's, it's gotta be, it's kind of almost indescribable. It's, it's gotta be pretty close to indescribable. I can kind of believe well, that is. I understand, but I, I, I know that I really don't. 
Well, I think you do. I mean, I've talked to you now for a while today, and I think you do have a grasp of what it's of, of what it's like. I think you do. Um, and I think, you know, if you're around the players, you're around enough guys, I think you can kind of grasp what it is. You can never get 100 mm-hmm. percent. But a ninety percent is pretty damn good. Thank you, and <laughs> you and, I mean? and res- respecting the game is the first start of that, the first step of that whole thing. Yes, yeah, respecting well, the history tells you right there that you that tells me right there that you do understand because a lot of guys only see what they see on television right now, and they try to compare it to what it was like, and you can't do that. It's almost apples and oranges now. It used to be that you could compare errors. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can't do that anymore because guys, you know, strike out now at 200 times right. or whatever and back in the day if a guy struck out 100 times he wasn't that good well hank People aaron told me hank, yeah hank aaron told me he would have stayed in the house all winter if he struck out 100 times and i saw johnny bench and tony perez when they got close to 100 rbis i mean 100 strikeouts it changed yeah so guys did care yeah and i i think Again, having an opportunity to speak to John Roseboro and Don Newcomb and Eldon yeah. Auker, who played in the 30s. And look, the, one of the reasons I wanted to catch up with you and as many guys as I can, this history needs to be told. And and I'm sorry. And it's going away. It is. It, and it's it's at an alarming rate. It really is going. And, yeah. and not yeah. everybody's a Hall of Famer, but there are stories. You know, there are guys who have been around the game who have uh, – Tracy Stallard was a gentleman who I thoroughly enjoyed. I just got off the phone with Carl Erskine, as I mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it, it has to look second and third person written word. Okay. It, it certainly has a place and that's needed, but, but as right. much first person as we can get recorded, it, it matters. Well, I've always felt that way about the Negro league. We didn't, we don't have enough information on the Negro league. Mm-hmm. I used to have an opportunity. It's one of the great times of my life I spent with Satchel Page and et cetera. I got a chance to talk to some of those guys and, you know, talking to them is like you talking to me. It's like, man, these guys had a good time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if it wasn't easy. Seen, <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. If you've never seen the all stars, it's a movie with, uh, Billy D Williams, you know, Billy D Williams. That is as close to, perfection as I, they got because those guys would tell me things and it just sound it's the same thing right so i tell people anybody i always tell people you got to watch that movie to understand what the negro leagues was all about and the museum in kansas city i believe major league baseball is finally oh, yeah. now taking a little bit more of a hand in making sure that that museum is is in a place that it's supposed to be in in terms of reverence i used to be able to go there every year i haven't been there for a few years now but it, but it, again, Major League Baseball has taken a little bit of a step, I believe, in helping mm-hmm. that museum get to the place that it's supposed to be. That's great. Yeah. Well, listen, Joe, yeah. this was this okay. was phenomenal. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Uh, Hall of Famer Joe Morgan did join us tonight on Hardball. Joe, we'll catch up soon at some point. Thank you for your time. All right. Have a good one. Thank, Thank you, you, Joe. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye. This could be it. Left field. George Foster. Geronimo Foster makes the catch. That's it. The Cincinnati Reds win the World Series in four straight. It was a sweep. 
The final score, Cincinnati 7, the New York Yankees 2. Joe, the big question's been asked most of this week during the off days. Is this ball club really as good as the all-time great team? I don't see how you can have a much better team. You may can, but I don't see how because we have hitting, we have power hitters, we have base running speed, we have space stealers, we have a good defense, and we have a very good pitching staff, as you just mentioned, and I don't see how you can have much better than that. Well, I grew up in Oakland. A lot of great players came out of Oakland. Frank Robinson, Fader Pinson, Willie Starger. But they had one thing in common. They were about six feet. Real physical specimen. And because of that, I stand here today very proud of the fact that I was a second baseman and that I did get a chance to play Major League Baseball. He came with the name Cincinnati. A kid with no A's in the hole On a hot, poker pot, Cincinnati Had staked his heart and soul Sure as the cards will be falling And chips in the pot Yeah.